hey, what's up? This is Matt Dietz, and this is None of My Business. This is the show where I get to sit down with smart, creative, and inspiring entrepreneurs in the middle of their journey. Because no entrepreneur is given a playbook at the beginning of their career. So what better way to learn how to do it than hear stories from others who have done it before us. And today on the show, I have my new friend, Stephen Soleil. Stephen is the CEO and founder of a company called Adaraxis here in Boise. And he's one of my new friends. Uh, we met, we sit on a board in town and we have some common friends and we finally got together to put the microphone between us and I got a chance to learn a little bit more about his path and how he got to what he is doing today and he is a total pro. Wait till you hear Steven. He's got a great story. He's really self-made. I mean, he started out selling Kirby Vacuums, which is outstanding. And he did it for quite some time. And if you can sell Kirby Vacuums for quite some time, you are a proficient salesperson. So I love talking sales with him. He's got some great stories about his time in the trenches there. He then went on and spent some time in the insurance world. Yay. And so... Man, that was fun to talk insurance with him. And he worked on kind of the other side and uh, ran a company that helps company insurance companies with their claims. And so we got to kind of nerd out about insurance. He founded the local chapter of EO here in town, which is one of my favorite organizations here in town. It's a group of entrepreneurs who get together regularly and help each other out at a very high level. And then he formed Adaraxis, which is a benefit company, and he helps companies with benefits and HR. And I love people who find a hole in the market, and they don't settle for what's out there. They fill it themselves, and that's what he did. So, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was awesome having a chance to spend a couple hours with you, and uh, let's just get on with it. Are you deciding between buying or renting your next home? It is true that home values have gone up quite a bit recently, but you know what? So have rents. Did you know according to the largest landlord in the United States, Invitation Homes, rents have gone up 14% since last year, and they forecast that rents will continue to go up about 6% annually. So while it's true that initially purchasing a home will be more expensive, your mortgage payment will remain relatively stable into the future, whereas your rental payments will likely rise significantly in the years to come. My man Joe Ackerland, loan officer with Premier Mortgage Resources, can give you a complete analysis with forecasts for your specific zip code so you can make accurate comparisons and see which choice you believe is best for you. Go to loansbyjoe.com, that is L-O-A-N-S-B-Y-J-O-E.com, or reach out to him directly, 208-580-3811. Premier Mortgage Resources, LLC, is an equal housing opportunity lender. Yes. Let's go. All right. Well, I am joined today with Stephen Soleil, who is the founder and CEO of Adaraxis. What's up, Steven? Hello. Thanks for coming in today. Yeah, thank you, Matt. It's good to be here. You ready to talk shop? Sure. All right, so we're going to get to Adaraxis and everything that it does, but I like to get some backstory. So tell me where you're from, and how did you get to Idaho, or, or did you start here? I, I didn't start here. I, I came pretty early in life, though. My parents moved up here from Redding, California when I was six. 
And so um, we moved around between Boise and Twin Falls. Uh, and I've been here pretty much since I was six, except for about a four and a half year stint in Salem, Oregon. All right. Very good. You wound up in Twin Falls for a while, right? Yep. Yeah. For Let's see. For fourth grade and then for high school. Okay. And then when did you get to Boise? Uh, I came to Boise in 91. 91. All right. All right. So let's talk about 91. Let's see if I got my years right. Um, or let's talk about kind of your first professional job, which I am fascinated with. Because f- what did you do? Yeah, the f- first professional job. I mean, I did, uh, you know, the normal high school stuff of a little bit of retail, um, food service, bartender. That's the nice thing about Idaho. You can tend bar at 19, which was fun. Yeah. Um, so did that for a little while uh, in school. But then once uh, I came to Boise to go to Boise State, and um, I was the uh, the guy in class three days in that got the tap on the shoulder and then the right. note that said, hey, uh, go visit financial aid. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So once I visited them, they kindly told me that I couldn't attend anymore because my financial aid didn't come through. Bummer. Yeah. So then I had to find a job. Yeah. So that must have been, well, that sucks that that happened. So now you're thrust yes. into the real world, right? Yeah. You're like, all right, kid, go go make a living. So, uh, how did you, how did you land with Kirby vacuums? Well, I had, uh, been, you know, trying to find a job with many different places and, uh, wasn't finding one, wasn't, couldn't get one. So I saw this ad in the paper that said, you know, come show our equipment for a month and we'll pay you 1200 bucks. Right. And in 91, that wasn't a bad deal. I mean, I think minimum wage was still around like three or four bucks. I bought my first car for 1200 bucks. Yeah. I got like, my first car for a hundred. Oh, so you could have bought like a fleet. I could have right? <laughs> I had an Uber fleet, right? Oh, everything could have been so different. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I went to this, uh, basically what's a cattle call and I'm in there with like eight or 10 other people. And, uh, I'm I'm listening to the guy talk about what you have to do, and I'm sitting there looking at him. And he later became a good friend uh, while we were working together. And uh, I look at him and go, "If that guy can do it, I think I could probably do it." Right. So I take the information, and they, you know, you got to show it sixty times in a month. Right. And they don't even really tell you you need to sell it. They just tell you we want you to go show it. Right. I'm like, huh, all right, I can probably show that sixty times in a month. But I went back and I called my dad and I was like, hey, what do you think? And he's like, well. If there's anybody that could probably do that, it's you. So, uh, you know. Now, 60 a month is like three a day. Yeah. And, like, and that's not even working weekends. Right. And right? You normally, you know, normally you're, you're showing it. If you could get during the week, if you could show it twice, that was good for most people. I learned that you could show it. I could probably show it three times in the week. Uh, you're going to find the independent, you know, person who will buy it themselves. Uh, you're going to find the ones that uh, that have to go. Uh, you have to go back to, and so I'd go coordinate, do a morning meet, um, showing to like a housewife, and then go back to yeah. and and meet with the husband and do a quick demo there. So and, you're literally door to door. Yeah. So in the beginning, what they have you do is, is they have you go out on the weekend, you get your first kickoff weekend, and they say, hey, just show it as friends and family as many as right. you can. And so this the deal that they had was you got twelve hundred bucks if you sold if you showed it sixty times. If you so if you sold a machine, you got 150, so you got a little bonus there. on top of the on 12. top of the 12. Okay, but if you showed it 59 times, you didn't get the 1,200 bucks. They didn't, and it wasn't prorated either. All like, right, you just got nothing. So you had to get a signature for every person. I'm guessing you had to prove yep. it. Yep. yep, you had to. You know, hit, well, actually, what you had to do then is you 
we had to call in from every appointment. Oh, okay. And you know, and then that way you could. Uh, You're like, here's Mrs. Jones. Right. I'm literally with her right now. And, and what's interesting about that is, is that while. It's a, in the beginning, a technique to make sure you're actually at an appointment. It later becomes a technique in closing a deal, because I used to I used to call like I have my buddies. They were at the bar waiting for me, whatever, and I'd be on an appointment and I'm trying to close a deal and I couldn't get a hold of my boss or anybody and I didn't need it at the time, right? Yeah. If I'd be call, I'd call one of my friends at the bar and I'd be like, hey, and just play along, and they're like, okay. <laughs> and so then it became a joke, and they would try to make me laugh. Yeah. While I'm pretending to try to get permission to sell a machine. Oh my God, that's fun. Yeah. I would have done the same thing. My, my buddies would have been at the bar. I know that they would have been, we would have done the same, same gig. Yeah. So there, so with Kirby, it was, it was great because the first month, uh, I, so I, I showed it, I think I set a record of 76 times, which I was showing it as much as possible because yeah. I figured, you know, if, if I show it to somebody, somebody's going to like it enough to right. buy it. Right. And so then I just learned to show it better. And then, but I ended up selling, uh, I think 15 or 16 machines in the first month. Oh my God. And, um, you know, about halfway through I got a, I, I got pulled into the office and they said, Hey, we're going to show you the secret, the su- super secret commission structure. Dun, 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 dun. And so he goes through the commission structure and says, you know, if you were, if you, I think I'd sold five or six machines by then. And he's like, if you, uh, if you were on the commission structure, you would have made this much money. And, 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 you know, instead, you know, you've made the nice, you know, $150 bonus on each of these machines. And it looks like you'll hit the 1200. So, I'm sitting there looking at it and I go, well, you know, I've already put in quite a bit of work on this and you're telling me that I don't get any of this now. Uh, I said, eh. he goes, but look at how much you could make. And I go, yeah, it's not a very good deal for me. I said, it's a really good deal for you, but it's not a very good deal for me. And so I start negotiating with him and he stops and he looks at me and goes, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm negotiating with you about this. 30 days in. Yeah, I yeah. know I'm like tw- not even 20 days in. I'm 15 <laughs> days in probably. Like who's holding the cards now, pal? Yeah. And he's like, nope, nobody's ever done this before. I'm like, well, I am. Yeah. And, and he goes, yeah, but this isn't how it works. I said, well, obviously I've made you a lot of money. And so I'm probably worth more to you than you are to me at this point. I'll go find another job. Yeah. And so we negotiate through and I come out a pretty good deal on that and then moved to commission and, and uh, worked out really well, I, except for the fact that that is the number one reason why I didn't finish college. Yeah. All right. Well, let just real quick, I work with a lot of newer salespeople and you and I talked earlier about, you know, this, the kind of simplistic equation to sales right. and it's not necessarily, it's not how many you sell, right? It's how many people you ask. Correct. Right. And so can you talk about how, you know, how Kirby gets that right and how they have that formula figured out. And if you follow it, you will be successful. You know, like how do you fail with Kirby? A lot of people do. A lot of people fail in my industry too because right. they're not doing enough asking. So, you know, what did they teach? Yeah, it was it was all about how many people you talk to, and they had two systems. Uh, one system was a card system that you would go around and knock on doors, and you would meet people and you'd say, "Hey, I'm from the Kirby Company, and we've got a drawing here, and um, let me sign you up for the drawing." And, um, you know, if you win something, I'll come out at minimum and I'll come shampoo your rug, blah, blah, blah. They had a whole different spiel that I eventually found a better one because their spiel is to get cards so that they can set appointments. Because then you take those, they have people who set appointments for you off those cards. I found that if I could get higher quality cards, 
I would show the machine just as much, but I'd sell more. Yeah. Because I pre kind of pre vetted them a little right. bit. But at the, at the same time, in the beginning, they're saying, just go out and get cards. We'll call and set appointments. Yeah. We'll get you a place to show the machine. Great. And so that was one side. So you're of building it. a pipeline. You're building a pipeline. Yeah. That's what you're doing. Yeah. And all the cards that I gather, and you know, if there's five other people with me on a, on a, a street, what they would use if they don't stay with the, with the Kirby, they have cards now that they can use to set appointments for newer salespeople. Right. Uh, it's brilliant. So you've got that model of like, we just want you to have at least, they say, show it twice a day. I always said, make sure you're showing it three times a day. I would show it three times a day. Uh, and then I just decided at some point I wouldn't show it on like, I would pick a day where I wouldn't show it, but I would always show on Saturday because I could get probably four in on Saturday yeah, yeah. if I wanted to. Um, and then it became a point where you're like, hey, I'm selling enough during the week. I don't need to do Saturday. Right. But you have to get to that point. Right. And so the other way that they do it is direct door, um, door to door, knocking on it with the machine. And yeah. like literally, you've got a 50 pound <laughs> right. box They're or huge. whatever. Yeah. It's like a World War II era like machine, which was built to last, right? Which is probably what made it great. Oh, yeah. They're, they're great, great, great machines. machines. They yeah. last forever. Yeah. Um, but you walk around the neighborhood. Um, I would walk around the neighborhood by myself sometimes and just carry the box. Um, and then you've got like a feather duster or something. You're trying to get in the door to show the machine. Right. So I had all sorts of times where you just try to <laughs> go in there. But again, you're just trying to show the machine as much as possible. And so if you get to their, their number 60 really came down to, all right, if, if we can show the machine 60 times and you get good at selling it and you get good at these good quality appointments, you're going to sell 15 machines a month. Yeah. 25%. Yeah. Close, right? Yeah. So why were you good at it? Um, well, I mean, I, I found it fascinating to just talk about it and to talk to people. Right? Yeah. I like talking to people. Yeah. Um, and so I would, uh, I was curious about it and I was always a problem solver. And that's, I think, the biggest thing when it comes to salespeople and when you're talking to somebody, if you aren't curious, then you're not going to understand what it is that they need. Right. And if you don't understand what they need, then you're just, how do you know how to talk to them about your product? Right. Because everybody's different in, in the product. I, I had people with the Kirby's that you go, you go along and you're showing your vacuum in and you're doing all these different things. And there's so many attachments that a lot of guys got lazy at showing the attachments. I found you never know what's going to pique somebody's interest to the point where they're like, done. Yeah. I mean, literally, I had one guy. Like, I was going through. I showed the machine to his, to his wife in the morning. Came back in the evening because she's like, oh, my husband's going to need to see this. I'm like, okay, great. So I'm going through everything, and he's like, he doesn't clean. He's not the one that cleans it all. Right. He's just like, yeah, whatever, okay. whatever, whatever, whatever. Well, there's this attachment that they have that can be a massager, a foot massager or a back massager. Now, there's nothing calming about it because you got this loud <laughs> right. machine going, but it'll, it'll, yeah, it'll, it'll massage your feet. Or it can be a sander. Uh-oh. And so I'm talking to this through everything, and I'm like, God, I'm not getting anywhere. So I'm like, finally, I pull out, like, I'm going to pull out this and just see, right? Out of your bag of tricks. Because he, he, you know, he kind of did some stuff. He, we talked about it, and he was, said he did, like, woodworking or whatever else. He was handy, like, to do that stuff. So I pull this thing out, and I show it as the massager. But then I say, but then you can use it as a sander. And it, it actually, because it's such a good vacuum, it 
picks up most of the dust and he's like, what was that? Totally. He's like, and he looks at her. He's like, well, as long as you're good with me using your vacuum to sand stuff, you got a deal. (laughs) I was just like, you have no idea. Yeah. That's awesome. So yeah, that's, you know, ask questions and listen, right? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So, you know, your career with Kirby ends after, were you there three years? I I did it a total of almost two, but I did it with about a year and a half break. Okay. Um, I took a break partly because uh, my brother and I lived together. He got married and I didn't have a place to live once he got married. Yeah, get out. Yeah, so I took a job uh, with a a sales, uh, advertising sales. Uh Drove around the country, and this is in 92, uh, into 92, somewhere in there. And um, I uh, drove around the country selling advertising, sports poster advertising. Nice. And, um, you know, at that point in time, there's, there's no cell phones. Nope. Uh, the exciting talk in technology, communications technology, was the possibility of a nationwide pager. Oh my god! Yeah, it would Can have been. Imagine it, was, it would have been game changing. Oh. Um, yeah, no MapQuest, nothing. No Google. I had a big book, uh, Atlas book that uh, showed every state. And what was your market? Just any small business. Just... Any small business. So they would call and, and pre-sell the ad, and then I had to go close it and then do final design, and. Um, um, so yeah, I was walking into different businesses. I was all over the country. I mean, I so you'd was, already mastered the door to door. Did they have a number too that you needed to hit? Were you like, we needed to close this many a day or this many a month? Or do you remember? Well, it, yeah, because they wanted you to hit a certain percentage. So if if they're pre-selling it, they wanted I think an, it was a seventy or an eighty percent close rate on the what they pre-sold. Okay. And at the same time, back then you're driving around and you get cash. A lot of people would just pay you cash right. out of the till. Like, oh, here yeah. you go. 125 bucks. Here you go. You know, and so you're you're living off a lot of the money that you're getting because, you know, you might have a credit card or whatever, but, you know, if you had checks, you mailed those back in, cash you had. There wasn't really, we didn't take credit cards at the time. <sighs> Unbelievable. So you did that for 18 months. Yeah, about 18 months. 46 of the I, continuous I states, have so. I have driven through well forty five of the forty eight lower states uh, and have been all over Alaska and Hawaii uh, for a different reasons that's but, amazing yeah so uh, it was absolutely the greatest and I would recommend that uh, I recommend it to my kids when they get a little bit older of like I was out there by myself yeah. And you got to figure out how to take care of yourself. Right. Um, you know, hey, I got on the road. I got sick a couple of times and you just had to figure out, you know, you call your mom long distance and it's not actually same. you call them collect back then. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah, it's not the same now where you can just like immediately get a hold of somebody. You got to figure out how to live on your own. And it, yeah. was, a, it was a great growth experience yeah. for me. So you're collecting all of this sales experience, right? Yep. And then you go into construction with your brother. Yeah, I went back and did Kirby door to door. We decided we were going to do door to door out of a van, crew of three. We were just going to hit a street and just knock ourselves in, and that's what we did. It was hard. It was hardcore. It was a lot of fun. And then it came to a point where it was like, you know, I just don't want to schlep this the rest of my life, right? And so. Um, my brother and I had been talking about, and he had started a painting company and he's like, why don't you come do this with me? And so we kind of did the company together and, uh, did that for, you know, almost, uh, oh, what did we do it for about eight months during the good weather? And then it's kind of hard to do that. Yeah. You know, the way we were doing it, um, especially back then. Okay. And so my, uh, my dad called me 
and he had started a claims adjusting company and God bless him. Yeah. Because, uh, he liked claims adjusting cause he was a retired policeman and that's what moved us to Idaho. And so he, uh, opened a Western auto store here for a couple of years in Boise and then when closed that and then became an insurance adjuster and that's what moved us back and forth between Idaho and Oregon. Okay. And you wound up working for him for a while and then you wound up buying his company, correct? Yeah. Um, he called me and wanted me to come work with him. And I said, uh, that's great, but I'm never living in Twin Falls again. Okay. Twin Falls, you know, it's great. I went to high school, graduated there. And so did that's you, just did your time. Went. Yeah. So I would drive back and forth in the beginning um, to to work claims there. And I said, let's let's agree to open an office in Boise. So we did marketing uh, to get that. And we both later talked and independently thought it would take about two years to get an office here. And it took about six months. Wow. So talk to me about claims. Like that's obviously interesting to me because I'm an insurance agency owner. You know, what did you like about claims? I mean, I, I'm guessing if you like to problem solve, which you stated earlier, yeah. like this is a great job to do some problem solving with, right? Absolutely. You have to uncover what happened and go through the contracts and find coverage or whatever. So, you know, were you adjusting in the beginning, you know, you know, taking care of people and their claims? Were you doing commercial auto home? Uh, you did some liability. Like what was, what was that like? Yeah, we did all that. Um, I started out doing physical damage. It's the easiest way to, you know, you learn is, yeah. is that go, go assess the damage on this car. And back then we didn't have computer programs. And so we had books that had parts with right. part prices part and, number and, and this, yeah, yeah. your handwriting estimates and doing that kind of thing. So, uh, learned how to do that and then, uh, got into kind of doing some property damage. But then as I got a little further in my experience, I did find that I really enjoyed more of the problem solving on the, whether it be the liability claims or the policy, I really enjoyed the policies. At one point I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, um, I'm glad I'm not a lawyer. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. Now, as I have gone through <laughs> life, you, yeah, I appreciate my you, lawyer friends. As you've had some experience on the other side of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the, the liability claims were probably my favorite because it's a lot of problem solving, a lot of it figuring, you know, a lot of asking questions. Well, how did this happen? And kind of putting pieces together. So I found that very fascinating. So were all the relationships with the insurance companies intact, at, you know, at some point, like how did claims come to you? Um, did you have to build relationships? Did you try and grow by going to different insurance companies saying, Hey, we can do your adjusting for you or we can, you know, what, how did you build that so that the business came to you? Yeah. So it was uh, interesting. My dad hated sales and marketing. He was kind of an introvert and loved the investigation side, but really was like, did not want to do the sales and marketing. Yeah. So, and when he was starting the company, my younger brother was going to go to college back in Wisconsin. So he identified about three or four towns that had some, uh, uh, insurance companies that he had worked with in. So he decided what he was going to do is he was going to go out and he was going to talk to them on the way out and talk to them on the way back yeah. to get to market. And that was the extent of his marketing ever because he got enough work from that trip from the people that Great. he knew from before. And then that trip that he didn't have to do it, it became busier. Well done. And so then, uh, uh, I come help him and you know, in order to get Boise going, we got a market and he's like, well, uh, he took two, two trips with me in the beginning. Um, and, uh, we went and saw insurance companies a lot of times. Um, I think that trip we ended up, one of those trips we ended up in Denver and then another one, I think it was salt, was it salt Lake maybe? 
Um, two and quite a bit. Salt Lake at one time was quite the insurance hub. Yeah. Um, it's kind of consolidated out now, but so, uh, we went down, did that, visited the companies, opened the Boise market. And then from there I started doing more of the marketing cause he just, he just didn't enjoy it. And I yeah. loved it. So, uh, I'd travel all around and I've hit every insurance hub. Like my sales side was helpful because, you know, I was going to places like Phoenix, for instance, has a ton of insurance companies. Well, you go there when it's nice to visit is the winter time. Yep. Everybody wants to go in the winter. But I'm going and I'm visiting like I'm the fourth guy that's sitting that day. And it's, right. and it's like, what is going on? So I um like, how do I get their attention? Well, I figured out that in talking to them that nobody goes and visits them in July. There you go. Because it's 115 degrees. Right. Well, I start going in July. And all of a sudden, I start picking up You're more. You're the only one there. I'm the only one there. Yeah. So about five or six years after that, then other people started going in July. Wow. Because, you know, they, they heard that I was going in July. So, But for many years, I was the only one there. And so I got lots of attention. We garnished a lot of work out of it. Because I mean, that's that's a good point. I mean... For me, it's it's not dissimilar to trying to get in front of mortgage brokers because mortgage brokers send us business, right? And so these mortgage brokers are getting, you know, people stopping by their office multiple times a day. Hey, I'm a new insurance agent. Send me business. Hey, right. And like you're just part of this line of people coming in trying their business. So yes, you do have to find a way to differentiate yourself and be different. So that's smart to go when no one else is going. Yeah. You know, that's awesome. Yeah. So... You wound up running this company or buying your dad out at some point. What was that? How did that happen? Yeah, well, we were, um, well, with the marketing, we were growing a lot faster than he ever figured we would. And um, was, he, was he good with that? Yeah, he loved it, except yeah. there came a capital requirement as growth happens right. that um, because he had, you know, not, he had a, the, the store that wasn't successful and it cost him quite a bit of money to, to close it down. He was a little gun shy. And so, I, I understood that at the time it was a little bit, you know, I took it more of an insult, but I, you know, we finally came to pass on that Yeah, because I realized I said, look, I came to work with you to help you. Right. And so, um, it was helpful for him, but he was just like, I can't, I can't handle the risk. So, uh, in 2000, I bought him out. Okay. And I said, well, I don't want you to go anywhere. Right. And he's like, oh no, I'll stay. And so he worked, uh, well, he worked for me technically for, 14 or 15 years. So you don't have this company anymore? No, in 2015, um, we uh, we kind of closed down some. Insurance claims as an independent really changed in the recession. The, the Great Recession really changed it. Recessions were always good for claims. Mm -hmm. And so what would happen is, is that in a recession, like in the, let's see, 92, what was it? No, uh, 96, 95, 96, there was a recession in 97, maybe. I can't remember exactly. Late 90s and then the tech boom recession, that kind of. So anytime there's a recession, what happens is, is if people get laid off or they need money, they turn in more claims. Right. Because they're like, oh, I could turn this in, and now right. I get two thousand, two thousand bucks or this. So right. volumes always went up, and it was always great. So two thousand nine was our best year ever. Um, and that by that time, uh, there was an acquisition we had made of another company, and so we had eleven offices in five states, wow. almost sixty employees, and um, so it was going great. And two thousand nine, best year ever. Two thousand ten starts off really good, and then all of a sudden we start to see this like down kind of tick and we're like well, what's going on 
So start talking to our, our clients, and what we end up finding out is is that the insurance companies are realizing, wait a second, this is not the normal recession, and this is going to last a while. Uh-huh. And so because of that, they start changing the way that they handle things and they start cutting expenses. And one of the funny things about it is, is that the first thing that they cut are usually the investigation side of the claims. Interesting. And so the, they see it as an expense. What they don't really seem to understand until they look back at a, at a point in time is when you cut that expense, your claims volumes go up, but here's the kicker. The kicker is, is that when they go to a state to get rates increased, they can't include the expense side, but they can include the loss part. Right. So they're willing to pay more in losses than expense because they can increase premiums. Yeah. And so it becomes a game for the actuaries yep. of saying, what do we want to do? Well, in normal times when they're trying to be competitive, they're fine paying the expense. But when they need to be able to raise rates uh, because they're losing money, they, they kick out the expense. Yeah, that's an interesting study and actuarial science and metrics. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So from that point on, it was right about that time too, that we decided to start Adaraxis. Um, because, right. because of that uh, acquisition and the size we were. All right. Yeah. So let's, let's dig into that a little bit. So a, what is Adaraxis? B, how did you decide that this was something you wanted to start? So, uh, well, Adaraxis is a PEO, professional employer organization. Okay. So we co-employ the employees with the business and do all the administrative back-end work. We become your HR department, do your payroll, um, work comp, you know, we supply benefits or manage all the benefits, that kind of thing. So we really take over all the stuff that nobody started a business to do except for me. Right. Who, so who's your competition? Um, you know, competition wise, there's a lot of nationals. Um, you've got companies like Insperity and, um, ADP total source. Uh, let's see. As Trinet as employers, employers resource. Yep. They're a, they're a competitor. Okay. Um, they're here local. They, they are now part of a national group. Okay. So tell me about like when you woke up one day and you're like, I want to start a PEO. Like, how did that, how did that get into your head? Well, I had a friend uh, that I'd met through the Entrepreneurs Organization, yeah. EO. We can talk about that later if you yeah. want. Um, but uh, I'd met him, and he had a PEO back in Michigan, and also uh, an insurance agency. And so we became kind of became friends uh, around the insurance agency because he was having some issues with it, and and I was talking to him about claims, and so we kind of became friends on that. And so when we made the acquisition and we all of a sudden we had, you know, we're in five states. I got two companies um, because I had rolled out um, this program that we were doing into another company. And so I've got all these employees and we're trying to figure out, like, why is Washington so different than Idaho? And Oregon's different, too. And so we're like, this is kind of a headache. And so I called him up and I was like, tell me about this PEO thing. Yeah. And so he tells me all about it. I'm like, great, I want to be a client. And he says no at the time. (laughs) And uh, it was, yeah, it was great. And so I'm like, why? And so he couldn't tell me then, but he told me later on, he's like, I was in the middle of selling the company. I didn't want you to come in and be a client and then not know you'd be taken care of. Oh, there you go. I appreciated that. Yeah. And so, uh, but anyway, so I said, okay, well, what do I look for? And so he tells me what to look for. And so I start interviewing PEOs, nationals, couple of the ones locally that that were here at the time and everybody I talked to either wanted to sell me cheap benefits or they 
you know, weren't really doing a service. You know, they were like, you can call and advise and you've, you've got your onsite contact. And I'm like, I don't want to employ anybody to do this stuff. I want you guys to do it. And so, you know, at the time it was like, I was competing with fortune 500 companies for employees and my benefits had to be good. Yeah. And so what they were bringing in was less than what I had. And so I was like, well, why don't you just manage what I have? Oh, we don't do that. Okay. So I'm like, how do you solve? You sol- you're not solving any of my problems. Right. And so, so I call him. You found a gap then in the huge, industry. Yeah. Huge. And so I call my friend up. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. And he's like, yeah, that's part of the problem. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll keep looking. So I kept looking. Finally, call him back. I said, I can't find anybody. You know, that does this. I had a sales guy in my office and I go, seriously, I'm, I'm asking if I can buy a service from you. Are you telling me you can't provide it? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. So I call him up. I, I said, I can't be the only one with this problem. I said, I might start one of these. He's like, well, let me know if I can help you. Man, it's a, it's a special person that can find a gap and be so motivated to be like, fine, I'll do it myself. Like I've got a friend who owns uh you know, like 10 Dutch bros in, in Nampa. And he could not find, uh, like he was having problems finding like a sunscreen because he was sensitive and he couldn't find it. So he's like, I can't find one anywhere that I really like. And he did what you did. He's like, fine, I'll, I'll make my own. So now he has a sun, he has a sunblock company and he's selling sunblock. And I'm like, God, it's amazing that you can do that. (laughs) So, so, uh, yeah. So, how long did it take you to have, to go from, you know, idea to opening your doors and like, all right, fine, here it is. Here's what we built. You know, how is it better than what you had seen? What did you do differently? What products did you offer? You know, how did you build what you wanted? Yeah. So it was a couple of years. We took a couple of years to, to get it put together. Um, we initially started with just the idea, okay, like this is how we're going to operate. So we took our internal staff that was doing the work and they weren't, necessarily they weren't professional HR people and about halfway through we hired an HR person in that company but with the intent of moving them into the PEO and so we basically just started doing the service for those two companies okay I will tell you there's no more better advantage than having your first clients that can't fire you yeah yeah, you know, that's a nice safety net. Absolutely. <laughs> now, I definitely pissed off, you know, a few of the managers and, you know, some of the employees because, you know, we screwed something up and mm-hmm. whatever. And so, you know, but we were able to figure out a lot of the, the pitfalls of how we needed to work uh, and what we needed to do. And so did that for about a year or so and then set up the corporation, Outer Access, the company, and then started to build out the software and other things that we had to, you know, get put in place. And then I started selling, uh, really selling the service at the beginning of 2010. And then we brought on our first clients in July of 2010. All right. So when you're selling this to a business owner who has 25, 50, 100 employees, and you're saying, look, let me take all of this pain away from you. Like, what is the, is there like, because there are so many different benefits that you offer. Do they, do they get the whole package? You don't really a la carte, right? Are they like, you can get health benefits, HR benefits. Uh, you know, what do they all get from you? It, it, it's really interesting through the years what we've how we've built this is is that we tried to a la carte for a while, and then what we find is is that if you can't manage something properly internally, you shouldn't actually sell it. It's fair, you know. And and so there were some you know you, you stub your toe here and there and. I don't want to say you blow your knee out, but you know, you, you kind of bang yourself up as you're trying to figure things out. Like, 
you know, for for you, for instance, if you try to take on a new line of insurance, but you can't find somebody that's going to service it properly, it just looks bad for you. Yep. So you don't want to do that. It was the same kind of thing. We were trying to a la carte. We were trying to do a few different things. But what we really found is it becomes something that you do uh, internally like for yourself is all this administrative work. Yeah. And you're not an expert at it, but you're doing it yourself. And so you have a way to do it. Well, when you put that together and now you're doing it for, you know, hundreds of companies, it becomes different and yep. of how you have to handle it. And so that's really, as we tried to figure it out over the years, we had to build things that made it easy on us internally. And a lot of it drove around maybe the systems that we had and what we could do. And if we can't all a cart cause it's hard to manage then we're not going to do that. But as we've grown and we're in the, like we're, we're changing systems it's allowing us to do things differently now because we have more flexibility. Yeah. But what an, what we normally do and what I say is is that we become your HR department. And how we act is is that if an HR department does this much, we're going to do just this much more yeah. than a normal in-house HR department would do. Great. And then, you know, if you've got things that you would normally go out for, we're going to we we can get them cheaper, we can help you because we have the expertise. Um, but that's how we work. And then with the benefits, we're going to manage them. Whether we, we have some that you can take, we manage benefits. Um, so we, we try to bring it to a place where it's what the business needs. Yep. And and that's that's a big part of it. And if the business doesn't need certain things, a lot of times you don't know. I mean, a business might not have as much stuff or the business doesn't know. I've also found this is very interesting. If a business... There's certain key indicators when you look at a business. And if a business says, I don't have a lot of HR problems, well, you can find out that maybe it's not that you don't have a lot of HR problems, is that you just don't hear about them. Right. And then you can ask another question, well, what's your turnover? And so if your turnover rate is high and you say you have no HR problems, it's that you don't know that and right. there's no place for the people to go and so they leave. And so there's lots of things to look at. And so... PEOs in general, it's a, there's an association for PEOs, and they did a study, and we see this the same thing in, in our clients, is that companies that work with PEOs and good PEOs that actually can help them and facilitate things have a lower turnover rate because the employees have somewhere to go. Yeah. So it goes back to what you said way back when we were talking about Kirby vacuums and solving problems, yeah, asking questions, listening, and then providing. Yeah, it's it's I work with our staff all the time and I've always said this because one of the first things that I learned to ask people when they ask me for something is if it's not straightforward, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? Yeah. Because if I can understand what you're trying to accomplish, you may think that I need to ask for can you give me this thing that's red? And what you're really trying to accomplish is this thing that's blue, right. but you think it's red and we're not talking the same language. Right. So being able to get on the same page and understand your need is the first thing I figured out when I was selling vacuums, yeah. because if you don't have carpet, I got to figure out some other reason to show you this machine. Right. I love it. Let's, you mentioned EO before. I want to talk a little bit about that and how that's benefited you. You started the EO chapter here in Boise, right? Yeah, I did. So, how did you hear about it? How did you decide you wanted to launch it? What did you think you'd get from it? And what was your path like with them? It's a great organization. It's a great organization. And it's a, you got to do a million dollars in revenue. Um, and you got to be an owner, founder, majority owner. So there's some key parts to what you have to be. So EO stands for? Entrepreneurs Organization. All right. And it's a group of 
entrepreneurs. Yep, it's almost like a support group, right? Yeah, it's yeah, it's a uh, it's a nonprofit education association is how that's really you know comes down right technically, but um, how I found it was it was in two thousand four and the company had been growing and my dad knew nothing about business. I had no friends that were business owners. And so I'd go and hang out at parties and stuff. And, you know, I had one, I had a couple of them that were managers. So they had employees. And so we could talk about employee problems, but then it stopped. Right. And, you know, nobody knew that, you know, hey, what do you do when you can't make payroll? Right. That kind of stuff. And so it's, uh, it was really kind of lonely. And so I was reading, you know, I was, uh, Inc. Magazine was really just starting to get going pretty well. And I was just devouring anything I could find. And I found this article in Inc. Magazine of these four entrepreneurs that they interviewed in New York. And three of them, now, granted, remember this is 2004, so I'm much younger. Yeah. And so back then, EO was called YEO, Young Entrepreneur okay. Organization. And so I'm reading this, this magazine, and three of the four uh, entrepreneurs interviewed mentioned this thing yeo and how incredible it was for them and so i start searching the internet to try to find the organization and i find the organization and i can't find a chapter in idaho so i'm just going to join one yeah so So you do what you do i email myself yeah so i email eo and say hey i can't find a chapter in idaho do you have one and 15 minutes later, I get this response that says, no, but we're looking for somebody to start one. And, and I'm like, raising your hand. I'm dumb. Yeah. I'll do that. <laughs> so, yeah. So it spent a, a fair amount of time. Uh, they were very helpful. And we got uh, three other guys who were great um, to, uh, we did a launch party. So I was doing a launch party uh, and sponsoring that. And we had a bunch of people come and three other guys signed up and uh, we started the chapter in uh, February 5th, 2005. Yeah. And so how often do you meet? So uh, EO is, um, they do social events. It's a big, you know, that's a big part of it too. It's, it's an international? It's an international organization. Yeah. yeah I think there's, uh, I'm going to say 13 to 15,000 members worldwide. Wow. I think they're like 150 chapters. It's, it's a great growing organization. Yeah. And you have access to all those people, I would imagine. Absolutely. It's amazing. I learned over the years that... Uh, you can you know go online you can see the members and what they do and i found that i could go oh here this guy does x and he's in florida never met him before you pick up the phone you get the, the answers their office and the receptionist says you know such and such and you're like hey i'm just calling i'm an eo member in idaho i just have a question for bob it was amazing if i didn't if bob didn't pick up the phone and i had to leave a message I always got a call back within an hour or two because it it. was just the, it's like a fraternal organization where you just know that one thing is, is that you can't sell to each other. And so when you take that element out of an organization, I'm going to pick up the phone because most likely you're calling because you want to talk about something, you need to learn about something or you need help with something. Right. And it's great. That's awesome. So it was a, it was a great time. There's some big hitters. There's some big hitters in there. Yeah. Yep. And you departed in 15? No, I, de- no, I departed just, uh, let's see, 19, 19 or tw- 19, uh, yeah. right before, basically right before COVID. Yeah. And we became, uh, I love the organization, still involved. Um, I help them out whenever I can. And we became a, um, um, what they call a, we're a sponsor of the chapter, but I can't remember the. That's uh, right. Well, I've had the privilege of uh, meeting uh, almost 15 
members of the local chapter and, and they've been on the show and things like that. And, and they're, they're a different level of professional, you know, they're, you know, they're well-spoken, they're successful, they've gone through it, you know? And, um, and I think the thing that they come with is their, their willingness to share and their willingness to help. And so I really enjoy, have enjoyed getting to know a lot of the members and, and, and meeting them and, and they've become part of my network now. So it's, yeah, it's great. The social aspect's great. When you're a member, you're in, and what they call a forum and you get to meet uh, with your group in a confidential setting at least once a month. Yeah. And you're talking about things that like you said earlier when you were you didn't know any other entrepreneurs or other business owners and you hit kind of a ceiling of things that you could talk to like these forums are places where you can really sit down and hash up real world problems with people who have been through it before. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't care, you know, until you get to like massive size companies. Um Ninety percent of the problems business owners have are all the same. Yep. You know, it's, it, then you've got the issues with your company specifically on your product or service or whatever. Else. But everybody's got the same problems, really, in some form or fashion. And it's great to be around people who've been there before and be able to hash it out. Or if they haven't been there before, you get a different perspective and you yeah. get some, you know, you get new ideas. I imagine there's just a sense of relief when you have a problem and you're like, okay, good, I've got a meeting I'm going to go to, and they're going to help me figure this out. Oh yeah, and there's so many times once you get to know um, them and trust them that you don't even have to wait for the meeting. You just send out an email and go like, Hey man, everybody, I, I need to, I need to talk through something. Is anybody available at five? And you always would find two or three or four of them that would be like, yeah, we'll get together. Yeah, that's great. So I want to talk about what's happened over the past few years, uh, with this pandemic, you've kind of had a front row seat with your company in regards to, you know, employment and staffing and what's happened in the world. And I wanted to talk and pick your brain a little bit about what you have seen and witnessed. Uh, what are some of the things that you think are going to stick through all of this? And I think what I wanted to chat with you about was, you know, what are things that employees or employers need to really be aware of to keep good employees? Because things are changing, things are different. And, you know, what kind of things are employees, you know, looking for today that they may have not been looking for a few years ago? Yeah. So, you know, what have you seen if you're an employer and you want to keep your good employees? Like, what are some things that you need to be putting into play or having conversations with to make sure you're taking care of your people so they don't leave. Yeah. The, the pandemic really what it ended up doing was I think it sped up what would eventually have happened anyway. Yeah. Because quickly, very quickly, because as you look, as we look at the uh, employment numbers and we look at the, the number of workers, available workers, there was going to be a shortfall anyway. But what happened was, is that as we closed things down and then people got used to not working, many people actually realized, hey, you know what? It's less stressful. And right now we're not missing that much money and we can get by. And so, you know, one of the people, one of the, the members of the family decides to not work and they stay home and they're okay. And so we've lost some in the market. I think that some of that will come back. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the numbers coming forward, it's, uh, there's, well, it was a few months ago that the first key indicator that we really saw this and it brought it to people's attention was is there was 15 million jobs available, but there was only 11 million available workers. That's a big gap. It's a huge gap. And it's the first time people were like, huh. 
And then as you start to look at the, the generations, you realize that there is going to be anywhere between probably a six and 10 million person worker gap for the next 13 to 20 years. And so we, we ha- I think we have to look at a whole lot of different strategies. And I know in our, in our session with uh, the Meridian Chamber that we are on together, that came up a little bit. Yeah. And, um, but it's something that we really have to look at because it changes the way that employers have to look at things. And it also changes the way employees get to look at things is because it, it is now reversed and it was until a few years ago before the pandemic, it felt as if the employers were in charge. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so and, let me, let me ask you this real quick because I run a pretty unique business. I run a, a pretty decent sized business in, for my industry and mm-hmm. 4,300 policies. It's, it's about, it's probably two and a half times the size of the average insurance agency, um, with my company. And I run it with two people. Most Agencies of my size will have four or five people and we outperform them. I can't speak to exactly how I did that. It's just the way that I train and teach my people. I don't burn them out. But where I'm going with this is, do you think that business owners are not getting the most out of their people? And if they realize that, that they can downsize and they can work their business with five people instead of eight or 10 people instead of 15, because the, the 15 people they have today, they're really only getting about 60% of what they can get out of them. Do you think there's anything there? Yeah. For some businesses, there definitely is, um, you know, where the, the pan, I think the pandemic showed them that, uh, you know, maybe we don't need as many people or, uh, the other thing I think that a lot of businesses saw is, is maybe this line of business isn't as profitable as we thought it was, so let's not do it anymore. Yeah. And they were able to downsize to find, you know, keep the people that they wanted. So we saw a lot of, rest- we insure a lot of restaurants and we saw the restaurants got hit really hard, Terribly. especially in the beginning. Right. And so a lot of them pivoted to, you know, delivery and carry out and things like that. And, and a lot of them were able to make it work with half staff and making adjustments. And I think a lot of them woke up and like, Oh my God, we were, we were able to stay in business with a totally different model that was forced upon us. Yeah. But we were able to continue to keep our net income the same. Um, because we were able to, you know, cut employees and even though our gross went down, we were still able, still able to make it. I always say it's not what you make, it's what you keep. Right. right? And so, um, yeah, it's been a lot of interesting, uh, problem solving opportunities for business owners out there. So, but when you go back to saying that you, the employers were the ones that were in charge, like how has that shift happened and what do employers need to kind of have our radar up, up for when it comes to, hiring and keeping good people. Well, if you, if it was interesting, uh, about a month ago, I got the opportunity to listen to a, uh, a speaker who, uh, studies the job market and, and hiring and what we do. And it was fascinating because I hadn't really, it's one of those things where you kind of like felt it and you kind of knew it, but you didn't know what to do with it. And it was, you throw out, everybody's got a help wanted sign. And, and for the longest time, that worked. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not working now. No. And part of the issue was is that as we go back, and he brought up that if you go back to like um, job postings, job postings go back and education requirements in a job right. posting. That goes back to the 1930s. What was happening in the 1930s? 
what was unemployment? 40% Correct. Yeah. And, and so that was put in place so that if they put a job out there, they didn't get 10,000 applications. Right. And so it was a filter. It was a filter. And that's what we've done all the way up to now. And what people are still doing, it was to filter out people to, from applying for your job. Well, right now, what employers need to be able to do is find the right people. And so you need to find a way to actually advertise and search for people, the right people for your job. You don't want 100 applications, and you're not going to get them anyway. But right now, you want to at least get five that work for your position. And so finding different ways to attract those people is what it's going to need to be, which means the way you post a job needs to be different. The way you describe your job needs to be different. What you're looking for needs to be different. Because the employee has so many options that they're willing to to look at those. Like right they just they just came out 52% on a recent survey of of employed people said that they would move jobs. Wow. That's scary. What kind of things should uh, an employer be focused on when being more specific with a job posting? You know, they don't have ex- we don't have experience with like crafting the perfect job, you know, uh, ad or, or or posting. We've been doing it the same way since the '30s. So, right. you know, what kind of things should they be thinking about? Is it just being more specific? Is it stripping away some of those you know prerequisites? Uh, what would you suggest there? Well, I mean quickly, I can tell you that what you should do is look at the people you have working for you now in those positions and ask them why they like it, maybe what kind of people they are, and then do your ad postings to attract that kind of person. Okay. Because that at least is a good filter because they're going to come to your job and then you can realize, then you can start looking at skills and that kind of thing. But you don't want to put, don't create a job description that keeps people from feeling as if they should apply. Like you need to have a job description and a job posting that is inviting because for a hundred years, almost we were trying to keep people, we were trying to filter people. Yeah. Now we can't filter now and the filtering is at their level. And so you need them to want to apply for your job because there's so many options for them. So you're really sharpshooting Mm-hmm. Instead of carpet bombing. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, because there's this no carpet left to bomb. Right. <laughs> uh, so talk to me about what some of the things that employees are looking for that's different maybe than the past. Not, maybe they realize that they have more, yeah, better cards to play. You know, uh, what kind of things are they looking for when they're interviewing for a job? And then when they get into the job, what kind of changes in benefits or, you know, work environments uh, are they looking for? Yeah, it's um it's as much environment as anything else. Like and they still e- even with the choice in jobs and and the options that they have, people really want to feel as if they're contributing to something. And a lot of that is a, you know far more than than benefits and pay. And pay actually is like the third or fourth still today is still third or fourth on the list. What are the first two? flexible schedule and time off. There you go. Because if you look at it, if you've got a bunch of salaried people, as long as the work's getting done, what does a week off cost you? Nothing. Nothing. Cause you've already paid it. It's a right. sunk cost. Yeah. So as long as they can get the work done and they want flexible schedule, figure out how to give them a flexible schedule. And that's what, what we've really tried to do and, and realized is, is that 
all right, we have an office. We don't need to have the people in there. We need to have them in there a few times a week. But, you know, if you want to be able to work from home today or you know, work from home, yeah. be flexible with it. As long as the work's getting done, that's what matters. And, you know, you got to be able to make it meaningful for them. Yep. You know, it's going to be interesting to see because I, you know, my dad worked in an office his whole career. I kind of grew up watching him do that. I have an office. I like working in my office. I like coming in and being with my people. I think there's uh, there's strength and power and camaraderie and kind of you can build a familial type situation if you do it right within your yep. organization. And I think that that's really important. Um, but at the same time, people are looking for flexible. There's work from home. I think some things are gained by that and some things are lost by that. So I think it's going to be interesting to see the balance of how you can keep a close knit team together. Uh, if you don't see each other as often, maybe it's possible, maybe it's a hundred percent possible. Um, but I'm interested to see how that, how that works. You know, we're all going to get zoom fatigue and, you know, we can text all day with each other and we can communicate in all these different ways, but you can't replicate, you know, a face-to-face conversation or the feeling that you get when you're looking someone really in the eye instead of in the computer or reading an email or something like that. So yeah, this interaction here is much different that I'm sitting across the desk from you than it is if we were on zoom trying to do this. Yeah. Right. You can have some interaction, but I don't think it's the same personally. I don't, but, but it sounds like it, you know, going to a hybrid type situation where working from home is going to be, if it's going to keep your people happy, then that's something you have to consider. Absolutely. You have to think of it and yeah. you've got to look at that because that's what people want. You know, there's, it'll, I think it'll be really interesting because there were very few companies before the pandemic that were a hundred percent remote. And there are now quite a few that are a hundred percent remote. It will be interesting to watch their performance um, and their people performance over the next few years to see if those perform as well than at least than the hybrid companies, because almost, I think very few talked, in fact, I've talked to very few companies that are really office-based, not manufacturing where you have to be there and stuff, but office-based that don't at least have a hybrid uh, option now. Yeah. You know, well, I think some of this stuff we won't know because you know, you may love working from home for a month or for 90 days or for six months or a year. And at some point you might be like, I gotta get out of here. You know, like this is, this has been great and things like that, but, but I'm missing something else. And, and I don't know if we're at a point right now where that's measurable or we can tell. So it's going to be interesting to see how, how these things flesh out over the next like year or two, if people are going to want to go back or if they're like, this is the best. I love this. I don't ever want to go back to the office, but that feeling may change, you know, over time. Yeah. I'm like you. I like the office. I like to go to the office. I like to work at the office. Yeah. Awesome. Well, buddy, I'm out of questions. So, well, you would, I'm going to work something in that you would ask me about because I was thinking about it a little bit. Um, when you grow a company and as you're growing a company and you'll find, and I think you see this too in yours is you, you really have to make sure that you still have visibility to everything. Yeah. Uh, it's important to know what's going on regardless. Um, you know, our company is big and there are many times where I start focusing on other things. You got to have the right people and you still got to make sure that it's all being done yeah. and that you pay attention to everything. And so it's, uh, 
It's difficult though, because you can't always see everything. Right. But sometimes, you know, and it, it goes to a story that I told you about that um, companies can get so big that they kind of lose sight of stuff. Yeah. And it, it goes back to uh, my claims adjusting years when there was a 150 year old insurance company, uh, Reliance, that in the uh, tech boom, they went under. Okay. And the reason they went under is is that they were throwing so much money at the market because uh, they were making 160% on their money and all of a sudden everything just tanks. It went away. And then now they're not making it and they're strapped and they go out of business. Right. And it was it was crazy that it happened. So we were over visiting with the uh, group. We had done a lot of claims for them. We were over visiting with the group that uh, was now managing the runoff. Yeah. Because when an insurance company goes out, there's runoff for years that yep. they've got to do. And so we were talking to them and we were getting their claims work. And, and uh, was, we were talking to the guy and we're like, you know, what are you, how long are you going to be doing this? He's like, I don't know. He goes, I think we're going to be doing this for a while. I'm like, well, how come? He goes, well, I was just at a meeting last week where we're sitting around and we're talking, we're going through assets, trying to figure out how much money we have to pay off claims and do all that kind of stuff. And somebody goes, what's this? And they're like, what? He goes, well, this is, this is the only place I've found this reference. And they're like, well, what is it? He goes, it's this 25 story building in downtown Boston that we have the deed for. <laughs> and it's not listed on any asset list anywhere. And they're like, what? And then they start looking into it and they're like, well, wait a second. It's full of, of office. Yeah, there's like, we have no offices there, but there's offices. It's all leased out. Where's well, the money going? Oh, my God. They didn't even know where the lease payments were going. Oh my so it's like, you know, you got so big, you had no idea that you owned a 25-story building in downtown Boston. I love that story. Can you imagine getting to the point where you're like, huh, look what we just found, essentially, right? Right. right. Well, I think what it's really good to point out is, is that most likely what happened through the years, they had one guy. Right. Who was in charge of that thing. And he died or retired. Right. That guy's no longer around. And it wasn't documented well enough that when somebody took over the position that they got that information. And so it's really, really, I, I love the thinking about that and, and how you operate is if you don't have redundancy and you don't have good documentation, you're going to lose stuff Yeah, and you're going to fail customers Yep. or you're going to, you know, one day find an asset after the trustee is going to find an asset after you've gone out of business <laughs> right. that maybe would have saved your bacon. Right. It's the last thing standing. Right. I love that story. Well, hey man, thank you for coming in. Absolutely. I mean, geez, we covered so much really, really good stuff. Uh, you're doing incredible things out there. Um, and I just want to thank you for coming in and spending an hour with me. And Has share, it been an hour? Your story. Yeah, it's been an hour. Oh, awesome. It goes fast. So, yeah. yeah, no, thanks for having me. It's great. Yeah, you bet. All right, buddy. Have All a right. good day. You Take bet. care. Thanks, Matt. Yep. Well, there you go. Thank you so much, Stephen. What a great conversation. So much to learn from you and such great experience that you brought. And I just appreciate you coming in and sharing your story. My name is Matt, and this is None of My Business. You can find me all over the place. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Deets Agency. Uh, you can find me, my website's DeetsAgency.com. So let's connect. Come find me. Let's have a conversation. Uh, I appreciate you if you would give me a review of the show. That would really be awesome. It helps other people like yourself uh, find the show in the uh, podcasting world. So just go on to the Apple app and uh, podcasting app and click on reviews and then write a review. It's really easy. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening and keep up the good work. <laughs> <laughs>